so many really good people have become convinced that there's really no alternative. Mm-hmm. It's better than nothing. Mm-hmm. And the, the whole idea of market-based environmental management, basically solving capitalist chaos with more capitalism, maybe some <laughs> slightly reformed, you know, tweaked capitalism, um, this is really the dominant principle in climate policy of municipal governments, state governments, the U.S. Biden administration, and really worldwide. the death panel patrons thank you so much for supporting the show we couldn't do any of this without you to support the show become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod you'll get access to the second weekly bonus episode just for patrons and our entire back catalog of bonus episodes and if you'd like to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes pick up a copy of health communism or request it at your local library and follow us at death panel underscore So today I'm here with my co-host, Abby Cardis. Hello. And the two of us are joined by a great guest today, Dr. Kathy McAfee. Kathy is a professor of international relations at San Francisco State University and studies the rationale and results of selling nature to save it as governments and companies try to solve climate and biodiversity crises by pricing environmental benefits and harms in dollars. Kathy, welcome to the death panel. It's so nice to have you on the show. I'm happy to be here. So just for some context, in early June, wildfires in multiple Canadian provinces sent smoke across Canada and the United States, culminating in a days-long air quality event across the U.S. Northeast Corridor, with major cities experiencing air quality index spikes into the 400s. That event and the politics around air quality as a factor of climate crisis weren't discussion in their own right, but today we're going to focus on a little-discussed aspect of that event, at least Some of those forest fires that sent plumes of smoke across North America were actually fires in commercial forestry plantations and in managed forests that are counted as carbon offsets. Carbon offsets are a favorite of industry and the neoliberal state, a piece of land or commodity that is meant to reduce or remove carbon emissions by compensating for emissions being made elsewhere. So considering, you know, that a forest fire in a carbon offset plantation means the emission of carbon, not a reduction, and Canada's carbon offset forests haven't really actually been carbon negative since 2001, we've invited Kathy to talk to us about the problem with carbon offsets, because this is one of her areas of expertise. But before we get into that, Kathy, for listeners who aren't familiar with your work, can you just talk a little bit about, you know, sort of what brought you to this work and what it is that you focus on? Well, I'm an academic, but I'm also an old hippie <laughs> and um, a, one of those 60s persons that uh, you used to hear about. So I've been active on many different things, uh, the war against Vietnam and uh, housing organizing in my life. But I spent a good chunk of time working for an international development and aid agency, Oxfam, But in the process of uh, learning more and more about what was going on in the global south, the so-called developing countries, 
I became aware of just how central the issue of the natural environment and who can, who claims it, mm-hmm. who controls it, who gets to own it, if anybody. And as time has gone on, as I've been looking at the policies that have been organized for nature conservation, and then increasingly as the world is finally waking up to the climate situation, climate change, uh, I have focused more and more on how the current kind of dominant way of thinking, particularly, you know, capitalist economics and policies that are framed by that way of thinking have shaped the whole kind of the menu of possible responses and have become so central to the policies being promoted by academics and conservationists and governments all around the world that are based on this idea of kind of bringing nature into capitalism, mm-hmm. uh, putting prices on natural phenomena, making them into tradable commodities. And I, I sum that up in the phrase selling nature to save it. So I've been working on that really for the last 40 years, I guess, in one way or another. So for folks who might not necessarily be familiar with some of these market solutions, can you just sort of talk a little bit about some of the typical examples that people, you know, maybe have heard of, but aren't necessarily associating with kind of like greenwashed capitalism? I think I can do that, but I think it would be good to just first um, remind ourselves of what is this? What's the situation that we're facing? What's the, you know, the basic bottom line that shows how much the world needs to decarbonize and do so urgently? So, just taking the the rather conservative consensus from the International Panel on Climate Change, you know, the climate science body that gives advice to international climate negotiations, people working on how to implement the Paris Agreement. Uh, According to that quite conservative but scientifically based analysis, um, we are very close to a serious overshoot situation where there has been so much carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases dumped into the global carbon sink, the atmosphere and the oceans, that there's only about enough space, according to this scientific panel, for about 500 gigatons of carbon dioxide and equivalent uh, gases to be further dumped into this shared planetary carbon sink. And at the rate that we're going now, the world is dumping around, well, different, you know, different people estimate it differently, but 40 to 50 gigatons Every year. So you can see we only have, you know, uh, 10, 8, 10, 12, depending who's counting, years before we have gone into territory that is likely to increase. uh, It's already increasing, but to drastically increase the droughts and floods and storms and fires that are certainly one of the world's biggest health issues. So in this context, we've been seeing kind of a new craze of businesses uh, of all sorts, governments too, and sometimes uh, nonprofit organizations even, and even individuals pledging to contribute to the solution by reducing their carbon footprints. Or as many corporate uh, statements have put out, uh, the company is working to achieve, quote, net zero emissions. 
Some companies are even offering products like, quote, believe this, carbon neutral fossil fuels. Gosh, <laughs> a, isn't that technically like scientifically an oxymoron? Yes, but 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 there's a whole industry set up to explain yeah. how this can work. Right? So that's what I've been trying to understand is how do these people reason? What's the scientific basis of their uh, reason? And uh, how do they convince people that this is okay? And at, right at the center of this is that most of these claims and, uh, you know, I mean, name a company. What's your favorite company you love or hate? You know, Meta or Google or the airlines or the fossil fuel uh, producing companies themselves. Almost all of them, uh, the big, more and more of the big banks are making claims that they are they have a plan or some of them are saying they've already achieved net zero or they have a plan to achieve net zero. And almost a meaning that whatever carbon dioxide, whatever greenhouse gases they're emitting is compensated for by something. And that's where the offsets come in. So almost all of these claims, when you actually look at the plans that the companies have been producing, they almost all depend very heavily on offsetting. And that means that they are paying for somebody somewhere else to do something green so that the company doesn't have to. For example, and I think these examples are probably familiar to many listeners, uh, the most common is plant trees. Mm -hmm. So you see things like uh, the World Economic Forum, you know, where the rich people get together in Davos uh, every year. <laughs> and they, uh, they've been pushing. Uh, a trillion trees. There are several campaigns for planting a trillion trees, and they can come up with the data to show how many units of greenhouse gases, specifically carbon dioxide, but there, there's a formula for um, showing the equivalent of all greenhouse gases in, in one piece of data. Anyway, um, they come up with these schemes for how much carbon dioxide can be absorbed or se usually sequestered by trees and other vegetation. Uh, if they pay somebody, let, let's just take a, a more U.S. example before we get in, even into the international ones that are the mm -hmm. ones that I'm most interested in. But let's say here in California, um, a company like the Chevron Corporation, the oil refinery that's just uh, a mile from my house, can pay a farmer in Iowa to set up a biogas digester to capture some of the methane coming from their pig farm. <laughs> and on the based on the theory that that little bit of technology will prevent the emission of X amount of greenhouse gases, Chevron gets to go ahead and produce that X amount of greenhouse gases, but it gets canceled out in the calculations of Chevron's contribution to climate change. Is is that making sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, that, that's the basic idea of offsetting. You pay somebody somewhere else to uh, do something that, at least in theory, removes carbon dioxide from the air or prevents the emission of carbon dioxide. And that can take many different forms. For, there's, for example, you can say, uh, this offset is based on investments in renewable energy, uh, based on the assumption, which can fall down at any point, but the assumption that 
because company X is producing more renewable energy, therefore, there won't be a need for more fossil fuels and somehow uh, less fossil fuels will be produced. So there are all kinds of reasonings that go into these offsettings. And some of them are based on plans or uh, projects for carbon removal by natural means, what they're calling nature-based solutions. Others are based on carbon removal by mechanical means or industrial or machine-based carbon removal. And we can talk in about either one of those uh, in more detail. Just from the, t- I mean, I'm sure we're going to get much more into this throughout the course of the conversation, but just from this brief description, like just from the top, it strikes me that this doesn't work. Like, it seems like this is perhaps just an accounting trick that's based mm-hmm. on a lot of like <laughs> uh, economic calculations that involve, like you said, lots of assumptions about what will happen. Yes. But it doesn't seem like this is actually, it doesn't seem like there actually is any way for this offsetting, no matter what form it takes to really reduce emissions. Am I, am I understanding that? Yeah. This is where the genius of capitalist reasoning comes in. (laughs) So if wall offsets work perfectly, and in a few minutes, I'll tell you why they almost never work. (laughs) <laughs> but if, in theory, if they work perfectly, the result would not be any reduction in the concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. It would simply be moving the burden of coping with climate chaos from one place to another. And generally, uh, this means moving it from where richer people in places to poorer people in places. Mm-hmm. Um, and the logic of capitalism or the, the some of the central assumptions of today's environmental economics, neoclassically, you know, mainstream capitalist, neoclassical environmental economics, says that this is actually the most efficient, the most economically efficient way to manage the climate crisis. <laughs> and if I'm not jumping ahead too much here, but let me just uh, spell that out. The idea is that it would be too expensive to stop a lot of the industrial processes and the fossil fuel extraction and refining in the wealthier countries of the world. But there are other places in the world where it would be cheaper to remove carbon dioxide. So rather than, say, building a forest in Switzerland, or uh, if a forest can be Uh, conserved or expanded in, let's say, the Congo, um, where people don't live as long and don't make as much money and land prices are lower and wages are lower. Why the result of kind of taking over a chunk of the resources of the big rainforest in the central Congo, um, that would be less costly to the global economy as a whole than to do something to reduce industrial activity and and carbon emission creation in Switzerland or Sweden or Japan or you name it. So that's the the economists figured and the conservationists and the the, the big mainstream, big green conservation organizations, a lot based in Washington, right down the street from the World Bank. The World (laughs) Bank economists and the conservation economists figured that Governments just wouldn't have the will 
to pay for what's <laughs> needed to solve the climate crisis. And besides, governments really shouldn't be, we shouldn't be looking to governments anyway, because the private sector is where economic progress comes from, according to their assumptions. So we have to figure out um, some way to, to get the private sector to come up with money to transfer to, especially to glo the global south. Uh, and if they can get a cheaper offset by paying for forest conservation in the Congo or Indonesia or Brazil, um, that will give them an incentive. And of course, all incentives, according to this way of reasoning, have to be material, you know, profit-based. That's mm -hmm. what would give the private sector a profit opportunity. And that way, the market will solve the problem. Because as we know, according to their thinking, markets always produce the optimal outcome. So this is the economic efficiency argument that is really at the core of the reasoning to justify offsetting. Hard to believe, I know. But, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, this is one of the things that I think we often uh, are kind of tilting at on this show, which is you'll hear these arguments as to why certain things are just categorically impossible, right? And And the framings for that, I mean, whether it's talking about interventions in climate, healthcare. I'm thinking right now of like the economic arguments made against Medicare for all, which often rest more on vibes, right? They say like, uh -uh. well, you know, Americans love their private insurance and it would be really difficult to convince mm -hmm. all Americans that one single payer is going to do it. And it's really not worth it to convert to single payer unless we're going to save money. And all of that brings us further away from the point of like why single payer is an important political intervention and why this is a policy, you know, we want and agitate for. And I feel like what sort of goes on here in a very similar way is that these economic arguments, not only are they like full of shit, but they also then take us like rhetorically, like further and further away from the original point of what we needed to do and why we needed to do anything mm -hmm. in the first place. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that I really have actually appreciated about reading your work, um, Kathy, yeah. <laughs> because I think you do a really good and engaging job of kind of explaining how this, ha you know, this just like sinister innovations in like market logic and accounting and even, you know, in the like what my area of pet interest is, you know, the area of like the economic, you know, the the methodology that is used to do these analyses um, and the assumptions that, inter that underpin that and the necessity of sort of disaggregating, you know, complex nature and breaking it up into quantifiable little units that are like amenable to being slotted into these mm -hmm. um, equations to, to manage. But yeah, I think, yeah, we see this all over the place. And this is a particularly, to me, at least, this seems like a particularly egregious example of the penetration of market logic mm -hmm. um, into a real crisis. Yeah, well, I agree with you. And that's why I, that's why I'm so obsessed with this. Set of <laughs> yeah. And, you know, really, because so many really good people, you know, genuine mm -hmm. conservationists, all these uh, masters, students with master's degree in environmentalism that are out there eager to try to do something, have become convinced that in spite of what we were just saying, uh, it seems logically impossible. They, they've become convinced that there's really no alternative. Mm -hmm. It's better than nothing. Mm -hmm. And um, it's gotten to the point where, well, it's been at this point, actually, for a while. Um, 
the the whole idea of market-based environmental management, basically solving capitalist chaos with more capitalism, maybe some <laughs> slightly reformed, you know, tweaked capitalism. Um, this is really the dominant principle in climate policy of some, you know, municipal governments that some have climate policies, state governments, the U.S. Biden administration, and really worldwide. Um, and you know, you you hear so much praise for uh, market-based solutions. I was just looking at a quote here from the head of the Rockefeller Foundation saying, uh, the only way to prevent climate catastrophe is to come together behind new innovations like carbon markets. Mm. Oh, the only way. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Um, but one of the reasons that when we're, both of us or all of us here in this podcast are trying to think about why do people believe this? Well, one thing is uh, to answer that question is follow the money, of mm -hmm. course. Um, there's a tremendous lobby. There's an offsetting industry. Yes. So, you know, okay. climate <laughs> offsetting today happens through markets and carbon credits. And most of them are private markets set up by private organizations, often uh, not all of them, but mostly for profit private organizations. They're not regulated by government. Uh, they want to avoid regulation by government. So you have this thing called the voluntary carbon market, the VCM, that comprises these private carbon entrepreneurs who set up projects like a forest conservation project uh, in some country. And sometimes these uh, project developers are local NGOs, uh, consultants working with indigenous groups. And sometimes they are just, you know, guys who decided to uh, move over from the cryptocurrency uh, market <laughs> to the carbon market. Uh, there's a bunch of examples of that. Crypto market is kind of a carbon market, if you think about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's another kind. Yeah. Um, so private these private entrepreneurs develop these projects, such as planting trees or promising to conserve forests or investing in renewable energy. Uh, or uh, technology to capture carbon from uh, industries or directly from the air. So then they estimate, they claim how much carbon dioxide is removed or how much emissions are avoided, what quantity is avoided by these actions or these pledges or promises. Then another set of private actors, private organizations, these registries, the most famous one, I guess, is called Vera, but there's you know four or five big ones. Um, they check the math of these project developers, and if it passes their check, and you know they'll hire a consultant third party to do that, then they'll issue carbon credits. So basically, ban brand them as certified with the Vera label or whatever the registry label is, and they sell them mostly to, to corporations, uh, although sometimes to governments and you know, nonprofits and individuals, but it's almost all to the major corporations. So that enables companies like uh, Google and Meta and KLM Airlines and you name it to claim that they are reducing their contribution to climate change. <laughs> it's amazing to me how much uh, they, they get away with calling offsets reductions yeah. when really all they are is, you know, a shift of the burden from one place to another. But these carbon markets are in big trouble right now. Um, there's actually a quite an interesting situation at the moment because carbon trading offset markets, um, sales are lagging 
They've been predicting it's going to reach uh, 50 billion uh, a year. Uh, they were very excited uh, a couple of years ago when the voluntary carbon market went from one to two billion, but it's been stuck for the last uh, two years. Major corporations are being sued for deceptive claims. Wall Street is getting cold feet. Um, and some of carbon trading's early enthusiasts, including some you know, well-respected science and climate policy leaders, have been backing off. There's been this blizzard of news reports. Uh, you know, ProPublica had a series of really good reports, but there have also been academic studies and think tank studies that are showing more and more clearly that these offset projects are not doing even a fraction of what they claim to be doing. Um, and yet, in spite of this, even like as we speak, or maybe not quite as we speak, because it's the end of June and the negotiations just ended. So in between the um, annual meetings of the Paris Climate Agreement, they have an intersessional meeting. So I was just reading the notes from what they've decided or been unable to decide because for the last three or four years, a very important part of the Paris Climate Agreement that's getting, you know, it gets renegotiated over and over again. A very important part of it, which is designed to set up carbon offsetting on a global scale so that countries and companies can be trading carbon <laughs> offset claims with each other. The, just the gap between the science and the the claims and the, and the reality is just getting so much wider that it's become very difficult for these negotiators to come to any agreement on how to set up uh, carbon trading on an international scale. So I've already talked about um, sort of what, what the, 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 the prize that they have their eyes on, which is sort of this low hanging fruit. Yeah. Of paying for cheap means of offsetting in poor countries. And I hope I've helped you see that because of that, these carbon markets absolutely thrive on inequality. In fact, they depend yeah. on inequality, on the difference between uh, well-being and, uh, you know, monetized living in poor countries and rich countries. So most of these carbon offsets are based on what they call nature-based solutions or nature-based ways of absorbing carbon. Then there are also the ones with the industrial stale carbon. And let's just talk about these nature-based solutions because that's the main mm -hmm. uh, type of carbon offset that's being promoted. So a carbon capture by growing vegetation mainly. And I want to say, first of all, you know, Yes, absolutely. We need to have forests to continue to grow. We need to have forests restored to continue to absorb, to sequester carbon dioxide. That's absolutely a really important thing, and policies need to be based on that. But should those policies be financed by offsetting? Should these policies be paid for by allowing some wealthy company to continue emitting greenhouse gases uh, as a way to get the, the funds to pay for this conservation. But it's really appealing. This nature-based solution seems so appealing because I mean, people think, well, trees are good. Trees capture carbon. <laughs> and if we can pay poor people to save their tropical forests, 
why then they can use that money to develop and they're poor and they need our money to develop. So <laughs> we could break down that line of reasoning at several points. But let's just say, let me just pick some of the main ones where even, you know, the advocates, especially, you know, these people who are really now starting to back off from their early enthusiasm for uh, global carbon offsetting. Um, some of the reasons why this th there's a growing gap between the science and the claims. First of all, once fossil fuels are unearthed, you know, that fossil fuel carbon is with us forever, right? Where mm -hmm. biocarbon, carbon absorbed by trees like those uh, trees in Canada that are burning right now, that's temporary. Um, and besides all the reasons why trees, you know, policies to conserve a forest can evaporate, uh, it can evaporate if uh, the value of the land for, let's say, planting soybeans becomes uh, a greater value than the value of the carbon credits that have been paid in order to save the forest. So it can change for you know economic reasons. It's a commodity and it's competing with, other, you know, nature conservation has become a commodity and it's competing with other commodities like beef and soy and other things for uh, the use of land, in, uh, especially in Global South. Uh, it's also temporary because of you know, storms and droughts and floods uh, that are increasingly destructive of forests just because of climate change itself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Another reason why it's impossible is that there simply isn't enough land on earth for all those trees. Uh, there've been some very good studies lately that have shown that to, in order to uh, plant those trillion trees, uh, that would require a land area total to the total land area that is currently in agriculture right now. Hmm. I need yeah. to check the data because I'm trying to remember if it was a, just the total land or a very large percentage of it, but it's a huge amount of, of land. Yeah. Uh, we would need three planets, you know, to have enough land uh, to plant all those trees and carry out all those so-called nature-based solutions. Then there's a whole nother uh, set of issues. And this is related to the fact that this is a private sector and unregulated thing. Um, and that's that there's, you know, there's a thousand and one ways to game the system. So mm -hmm. many of these um critical reports that have now given pause even to Wall Street on carbon offsetting have to do with phony baselines where uh, in order to, to estimate how much carbon is going to be sequestered uh, because of this, say, forest conservation project, uh, we're going to say what would have happened if we didn't have the carbon offset revenues, the payments for this project. Well, we'll compare that to what happened in the past or what happened in some other tract of forest land on the other side of the mountain. And what's turning out is that systematically uh, the baselines get rigged so that it looks like if this forest had been logged, X amount would be would have been produced because someplace else we see that X amount was produced. But it's very arbitrary. And the designers of the projects have often intentionally, sometimes, you know, not realizing it, but very often 
have chosen a baseline for comparison that makes it look like they're absorbing or preventing the release of a whole lot more uh, carbon dioxide than is honestly happening in the real world. Mm. And then another issue is this thing we call non-additionality, where they say, well, we get credit for saving this forest, therefore we can keep on uh, releasing our greenhouse gases here from Chevron or KLM Airlines or you name it. But it often turns out that there was actually no plan to destroy that forest in the first place. We've even seen examples where the the Nature Conservancy, one of the big advocates, you know, a lot of this 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 industry has a lot of players from the big green conservation organizations like Environmental Defense Fund and World Resources Institute, the Nature Conservancy, uh, and so on, Conservation International. Now, I'm just trying to remember whether it's Conservation International or the Nature Conservancy, because I, I don't want to accuse the wrong one. But one of those two, I forget which one right now. It's it's all Bloomberg and many other, The Guardian, Decide, all these uh, uh, journalistic uh, outlets have, have covered this, so you could easily look it up. Anyway, this conservation organization was selling offsets based on the conservation of a big forest tract in the U.S. Southeast that they had already been claiming and raising money on based on their promise from years ago that this forest would never be cut. Mm. So, I mean, then they get getting away with things like this. So anyway. So again, like just what's striking to me again is just how much this does not work. Like this is not preventing... Like there's not commensurability between the amount of carbon that's being exactly even the amount that's being offset, but like it doesn't prevent emissions from taking place. Right. Um, Yeah. And then there's, you know, there's so many other things where you stop the deforestation in one place, but the forest industry is still there. So it just goes across to the next across the border. (sighs) Mm-hmm. to the next state and uh, invest there in its um, destruction. It reminds me so much of things like, um, for example, like the World Bank's um, disability inclusive development agenda, where, you know, you really have these kinds of really liberal frameworks that, that, for example, you know, will say like, okay, we have to celebrate disability internationally and we have to raise attention for disability pride and all of these sort of larger positivist sort of hopeful frameworks um, that, you know, organizations like the World Bank and all these sort of development banks will appropriate and, and try and formulate as part of their agenda or framework in some way. And, and what that often does is it then you know, kind of co-ops both the sort of inclusion framework and disability framework. And it also Mm -hmm. like runs cover for the ways that capitalism and continued, you know, imperialism by the global north is the largest producer of disability um, for Mm -hmm. more people globally. So it's, it's really kind of reminiscent of how, you know, these kind of mythologies, these fantasies, these narratives or points of rhetoric, they kind of get sucked up, reappropriated, and then that new meaning becomes reinforced through kind of the creation of a market around that meaning. Mm -hmm. And that begins to become, you know, not only a force that perhaps prevents other 
options or, or policy uh, ideas from being considered or, or even discussed. But at the same time, it also like invisibilizes, you know, what's going on actually in the communities that are being materially impacted by this mm-hmm. type of extraction and then cover up. Yeah. yeah well, that's a, so parallel to what's happening with the climate projects, because the major argument that you're hearing these days is that these, for all their limitations, okay, maybe they're not perfect, a lot of their advocates are saying, but this is the best way to channel development aid, to channel anti-poverty attention to these countries and and to these communities and to these indigenous people. So increasingly, indigenous people who've been really on the forefront of opposition to a lot of these projects are also being mobilized to advocate for carbon offsetting. And it's, tremendous, it's creating tremendous divisions among indigenous peoples around the world. Uh, I've really seen this up close. But what they're saying is, this is the only way to develop. This is the way to channel money to these indigenous organizations. So many really, you know, well-meaning young academics and young climate activists, conservationists have been saying, yeah, but we have to do this because that's this group needs to have this income. Now, what really needs to happen is that the land rights and resource rights and territorial rights of indigenous people need to be respected. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the, the data is kind of well known that if you compare the results of preserved areas, you know, protected areas, national parks, to places where indigenous people actually do have control over their territories, the, the record of conservation, of sustainability among the indigenous controlled territories is much better. The national parks just don't make it uh, on, on, the, on the same scale. So there's a whole lot that can be done in, in, in that way. But, you know, you, you may have heard people talk about um, international carbon markets as a form of colonialism. Have you, I don't know if you've mm-hmm. run into that. Yeah. Because and this is how this is how I see it, <laughs> because, you know, basically carbon credits are basically sort of the latest tropical commodity miracle crop for export. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, since, the, you know, for the last 500 or so years, <laughs> it's a terrifying way to put it. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to um, sleep tonight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know. Global South countries were reconstructed under colonialism to serve the interests of the, you know, the British East India and West India Company and Dutch West Indies, East Indies companies and so on. They were reconstructed in order to be able to provide the cheap raw materials, you know, cotton, indigo, jute, coffee, oranges, you know, on and on and on. Uh, And for hundreds of years, they've been exporting this cheap stuff. Uh, and have lost their capacity. I mean, it's been d- intentionally destroyed under colonialism to have, let's say, their own textile industries and their own agricultural systems. So they've become dependent on exporting cheap stuff and importing expensive stuff and getting more and more into debt. So, hey, they need money. Let's give them money through carbon offsets, right? Mm-hmm. 
But really, you know, carbon trade is it's just a buyer's market. There's a virtually infinite supply of would-be sellers, uh, you know, com communities, countries, states, municipalities now that are trying to get a little bit of money since they've been so screwed uh, by foreign aid and indebtedness uh, from carbon credits. They don't see other sources. Um, so there's lots of people trying to sell carbon credits. And at the same time, you have the buyers who, by virtue of you know being for-profit companies, have to search for the cheapest offsets. Uh, the, some of them are buying what they call premium offsets that include things like promises to abide by human rights and give people uh, consent over these projects. So there's, there's different uh, levels of you know quality in your, your carbon offsets um, or carbon offsets that also pay for biodiversity conservation or pay for uh, a new health center in an indigenous community. So, but basically it's cheaper to buy these carbon offsets than it is to actually make changes in their the production of greenhouse gases. And if you're a, a you know a capitalist, if you're a CEO of any corporation, you may be the nicest guy in the world. Uh, you may really care about nature. You may donate to Greenpeace, et cetera, et cetera. But your corporate bottom line says, you know, you've got to carry this out in the most profitable way. Mm -hmm. So yeah, <laughs> this is the yeah. situation we're in right now. Yeah, you're just the bearer of you know, the incentives of the firm or whatever. And it strikes me that this is just, yeah, once again, this doesn't work. This seems like maybe just a little fantasy tax <laughs> that some <laughs> of these corporations have to pay uh, as as a condition of, of continuing to do business as usual, which I think yeah. is irrational from the standpoint of the entire world um, and, you know, the future. But and that's a just like hyper rational at the level of the individual firm, I guess. Yes, totally, totally. And not to just like bring in disability again, but the whole conversation, I can't stop thinking about the work of a particular disability studies scholar named Helen Mikosha, who is kind of credited with with uh, basically calling out disability studies as a field, saying that disability studies kind of constitutes a form of uh, scholarly colonialism and that part of, you know, that has to do with the concentration of resources and attention and rhetoric uh, control over that meaning production that actually resides mm. in the global north and how, you know, for the most part in the global north, because of our models of disability and the kind of ways that our disability policy have you know, been realized and fought over the ADA in particular, you know, these these ideas of sort of enshrining the social model of disability through legislation and the incredible sort of pressure to have that be successful, right? Um, disability writers and, and researchers kind of out of fear of a return to the medical model of disability, of a return to the, you know, the era of rehabilitation policy being what dominates uh, disabled life, you know, they want to avoid discussing like the issue of preventing disabilities mm -hmm. because it's kind of a touchy topic. But, you know, what Mikosha's work really calls out is that like, you know, in disability studies, kind of ignoring or avoiding the topic of disability prevention, you know, we're really not taking account of those 400 plus million disabled people who are living in the global South. Um, one of my mm -hmm. favorite parts of, of a, um, of a 2011 um, essay that she wrote, she says, quote, scholars and activists need to confront as a central issue the production of impairment in the global south. 
The processes of colonization, colonialism, and neo-colonial power have resulted in vast numbers of impaired people in the global South. Mm -hmm. Much of this relates to the global economy. It concerns control of resources. Impaired people mm -hmm. are produced in the violence and war that is constantly provoked by the North, either directly or indirectly, in the struggle over the control of minerals, oil, and other economic resources, ultimately the control of the land and the sea themselves. But it's also, you know, this kind of race to the bottom and the ways mm -hmm. that I think the better than nothing rhetoric can actually be very harmful when it you know, occurs at scale like this, because the kind of better than nothing line, I think, really does also run this cover of of kind of avoiding talking about, you know, the contradictions and, and, and frankly, all the harms of carbon capture being kind of the go to solutionism right now. Yeah. Well, and dissolving these questions into again, this is like a pet interest of mine, like dissolving these like really important questions to bring this, I guess, back around to like carbon politics for like who is responsible for all of these emissions and like whose responsibility is it, um, you know, to mitigate these emissions or to pay for, you know, the effects of climate change. It seems like this is all of this meticulous kind of carbon, you know, offsetting accounting is a way to sort of dissolve those like real difficult political questions into, you know, to dissolve them in this like solution of, of pseudo scientific <laughs> but it creates neutrality. A lot of jobs and careers. <laughs> totally. The process. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. Let, let me just pick up on, on what you've both been saying. Just it's so parallel because um, this concentration on these calculations and all the people, all the energy, the organizations, the jobs, <laughs> Uh, the software development uh, that's all going into this carbon calculation. Um, it's what what is it distracting us from? So mm -hmm. let's just say our goal, keep keep it to this most simple example. Our goal is to conserve tropical rainforests. What is destroying tropical rainforests? <laughs> it's not the, the ignorance of the people in the tropics. Mm -hmm. It's the expansion of meat consumption. It's the expansion of soy and other so-called flex crops for processed foods and animal feed around the world. It's the expansion of extractivist industries in petroleum and other minerals. Uh, these are the things that they don't focus on. They don't want to touch uh, because, again, that would uh, threaten the business bottom line. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Things are basically, basically fine with the climate and with the economy and with just a few, you know, a few gentle corrections to the market. Mm -hmm. It's all, it's all fine. You know, like don't, don't look too closely um, behind the curtain. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's, it's very, it's very interesting. This has been a very interesting conversation for me so far because I don't know, I'm very interested in how kind of the, the technical debates around this um, kind yeah. of cover, you know, cover the yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, but meanwhile, this is interesting for me too because I knew nothing about. I know, still know nothing about uh, disability studies and its problems. Although I can, <laughs> I can understand what you're saying when you describe the parallels. I mean, I, I think you know so much of um, disability theory. You know, has to do with contending with um, environmental. Mm 
pressures, uh, not just in terms of like the actual environment, but, you know, those kind of the pressures of, um, you know, your your living conditions, the air that you breathe, whether it's because, you know, maybe someone's uh, who's disabled is chronically ill. And so they're thinking through things um, through their own experience or it's someone sort of looking at disability structurally or looking at different sort of ways that disability is um, engaged with you know, across like different global perspectives, so much of that has to do with resource management in terms of like sort of how the land is even being managed. Like mm-hmm. these are all some of the larger factors that are going to actually produce disability at scale. I'm thinking so much right now of the work of Jasbir Poir, who writes um in uh, her book Right to Mame about disability in Palestine and how it's a it's a um, kind of intersecting and really a, a sort of oppressive layering of both the kind of physical sequestration and being um, surrounded of things like expired medications that are sent into Palestine that are so close to expiration that most of them end up uh, going into landfill and then that landfill space being restricted um, politically by Israel and that resulting in the pharmaceuticals then getting into the groundwater and and the you know and it's like a whole um, cascading thing and you know I haven't even mentioned like the actual physical maiming um, and disabling that goes on because of the oh, actual yeah. military occupation of Palestine. And and what Jasbir writes about is, you know, the idea of the right to maim. And I really do feel like this, this conversation that we've been having about, as uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls it, capitalism, saving capitalism from capitalism, um, <laughs> is showing how much these kind of green market solutions and things like you know, carbon capture, uh, the idea that we can simply just move, you know, <laughs> move our pollution elsewhere or or balance things out, that is really itself a right to maim. And I think all these mm-hmm. industries and all of the laws and sort of international frameworks and, and sort of NGO approaches to this too only make that right to maim more important to maintain. There is so much money caught up in climate solutionism that, Mm -hmm. you know, it is in and of itself an incredibly important market. You know, it would be like Mm -hmm. getting rid of nursing homes and giving everyone, you know, the in-home community-based long-term care that was guaranteed in the United States by the Olmstead decision by the Supreme Court in 1999 and has never been fulfilled, you know, would get rid of the nursing home industry. So why would you actually sort of fulfill that right um, if it would collapse the industry, right? So it's it's one of those um, examples where I think disability in and of itself as a, as a social process and as a force as it relates to policy too and the ways that we like to deal with these things individually, mediated through kind of personal responsibility, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's all there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking two points of... Uh, about what you said. One is that basically what we're talking about, when you turn any environmental good or bad into a tradable commodity, or the same if you turn a health good or bad, an asset or deficit into a tradable commodity, what you're doing is you're giving those with the the greatest wealth, the greatest purchasing power, the ability to determine the outcome, you know, the fate of landscapes all around the world, right? That's what I mean by selling nature to save it. 
Yeah. So when defenders of carbon offsetting or global carbon trading, the voluntary carbon market, uh, are confronted with these discrepancies between you know the scientific findings and the claims that are being made on behalf of offsetting, a lot of times their response is, yes, we can make those requirements a little stricter. We can require uh, you know better accounting. But if we make it too strict, it's going to destroy the market. So the market itself becomes the be-all and the end-all. The purpose of their activity mm-hmm. is to create and maintain the market. Mm-hmm. I think some of them are doing that because they really believe there's no alternative. Many of them are doing it because they themselves are carbon marketeers <laughs> uh, with big investments in uh, carbon trading and big uh, gains to be made by avoiding uh, paying the true costs of their contributions to climate destruction. Yeah, I think so much of how one of the things that we talk about often on this show when it comes to, you know, social safety net policies, like, um, you know, we've been talking so much recently about uh, the so-called Medicaid unwinding, where starting April 1st, uh, because of, you know, policy changes and a budget negotiation, you know, before the the end of the federal public health emergency, folks started getting kicked off of Medicaid um, as of April 1st. And so this whole process of redetermination started. And already, you know, we're we've only got data coming in from 25 states and over 78 percent of those people who got kicked off in the last you know month and a half um, have gotten kicked out for procedural reasons, for paperwork. You know, 30 percent of them are children. And when we sort of have been talking about this, and we've been talking about this this as a cliff that was upcoming since early 2021, um, mm. when Biden took office, and it's been always like a deep focus of ours. And what we've been so frustrated with this whole time is that, you know, we knew that this was happening. We knew that this was coming. They've been talking about the need to do this, right? You can't, like, break the norm of having a policy that's means tested that doesn't fucking punish people with administrative burdens like at the rate that Medicaid does for too long because then, you know, like uh, people might, I guess, want (laughs) something more out of, um, you know, our policy framework. But the thing that's so frustrating is that, you know, in all the planning, everyone's like, well, we'll make sure that the envelopes are green or purple so that people will really notice them. Well, we'll start to, you know, buy Instagram ads that say, oh, you lost your Medicaid? Like, sign up for an ACA marketplace plan. (laughs) Like, the concern was all about sort of how do we handle the image? Um, Mm -hmm. Are we going to work with Deloitte on a contract Mm -hmm. for like a new software to automate these? Are we going (laughs) to like bust uh, the union for our employees before we do this who are saying to us like we don't have the staff to kick as many people off Medicaid as you want us to kick off Medicaid as quickly as you (laughs) want us to do it? No, you know, the 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 you know, those are all the kind of like (laughs) frameworks that become what we say are solving the problem, right? And the real problem is that millions and millions and millions of people are going to suddenly lose their health insurance in the United States in the single largest event, concentrated event of people losing their health insurance that we've ever had in the modern era, which, and health insurance only has existed in the modern era. So this is, (laughs) you know, a catastrophic blow to the US health finance system. 
and we say that we're solving a problem, you know, that is what's going to happen when that blow comes. And solving the problem has meant making markets, right? And mm-hmm. maintaining mm-hmm. those markets and enforcing mm-hmm. the boundaries and borders of those markets. And that's what, you know, the problem actually is being solved for in the policy landscape. But in the public discourse, in the popular imagination, and in the cultural, like, imaginary, we have this idea that the they've all been hard at work figuring out what to do about all the people that got kicked off of Medicaid. Mm-hmm. But it often feels like some of the only people who have been really worried about what to do when people get kicked off of Medicaid are like, you know, us five who host this podcast and all of the people who listen to it, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> and I, I really feel like what green capitalism kind of proposes, like in so many ways is, is that, that ethical version of capitalism where there's, there's really no change that has to happen. The, the perpetual growth can continue. And mm-hmm. you know what, even in addressing something as catastrophic as climate change, you can get, you know, you can secure the bag. We'll make a market for you too. I mean, it's 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 brutal and it's fucking insulting. Well said. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we've been talking a lot about offsetting in particular. Um, and I'm I'm wondering if we can maybe kind of do two things <laughs> as we are starting to close out here. Um I'm wondering if we could briefly touch on, you know, carbon offsetting. It's an important topic, but it's not sort of the sum total of ways of sort of pricing carbon or or trading carbon. So I'm I'm wondering if we could maybe touch on some other sort of like green green economy, green capitalism uh ways that that carbon is handled and then I in particular am very interested to hear like what some of the alternative ways of thinking about this are, because this is not an intuitive way to think about, at least to me, (laughs) I feel like all my comments so far have sort of betrayed that this is not an intuitive way for me to think about um, ecology or climate change, like through this weird sort of market framework. So I would also be interested in hearing what alternative frameworks are out there and how, you know, we can what the proposals are for seriously addressing, you know, the problem of of greenhouse gas emissions and climate change, as opposed to these kind of clownish like <laughs> market solutions that we're that yeah. we're talking about. Well, there are other ways that um, carbon is priced, or uh, there are other efforts to use uh, the tools of capitalism of of mainstream economics to mitigate uh, to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And and the the two main ways are carbon pricing through taxes, carbon taxation, carbon taxes, and cap and trade systems. Mm -hmm. So cap and trade is the one I'm more familiar with. I know there are are a a number of cities, states or provinces uh, and countries around the world that have been putting taxes on carbon, uh, where basically they calculate how much various industries and various companies have contributed, how much carbon dioxide or equivalent they're producing, uh, and there's a tax on that. But the taxes are generally much too low to really uh, change business as usual. Mm. So companies can opt just like they can opt for an offset. They can pay a penalty in the form of a tax. 
And again, uh, what we've seen is that these taxes are not intended to threaten the bottom lines. I mean, the rhetoric uh, that arises when people start questioning whether they're making any difference is, uh, well, we can't do that because that business would close down and we'd lose all these jobs. That business would move <laughs> from Mississippi to Alabama. Is the market supposed to incentivize <laughs> reduced emissions or not? Like, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But, you know, the theory is that, you know, businesses will care enough and uh, the taxes will gradually increase, maybe if people are persuaded. I, I'm not an expert on carbon taxes, but I, I wanted to mention it because that is one it is another way of pricing carbon. But again, uh, without threatening the existing trajectories of uh, production, power and profit making, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. And then the other way is cap and trade. And that, that's um I know a little bit more about this because I've had to deal with this here in California. Um, so governments basically set limits. They set caps. They set allowances uh, based on how much a particular industry has emitted in the past. And they say, OK, you have permission to keep on emitting that this year. But next year, we're going to lower the cap. And the year after that, we're going to lower it a little bit more. So you don't have to worry, though, because if you're a, you know, an innovative company, you'll figure out a way to reduce your emissions. But if you're not, you can buy them. You can buy your, uh, your allowance, your part of your permit to pollute uh, from some other company that hasn't been willing or able to reduce their emissions. So the theory is that the cap will be declined, will go down. And as you can probably see, this is not a pure market mechanism because it involves some government intervention, government regulation. And in fact, if you look at the, the, the um, global carbon offsetting that we've been talking about before, when you actually look at these programs, it turns out they all involve subsidies. Mm -hmm. So none of them are really pure market mechanisms, but that's a whole story in itself. But right now I'm talking about cap and trade. So uh, so cap and trade, government set these limits um, and the limits have been made, again, the same problem as with carbon taxes. The limits have been too generous. The caps are set too high mm. to really threaten business as usual. The businesses will move to another state in California here. They say, oh, the businesses will move to Texas. So mm. um, we don't want to threaten business profitability, basically. They don't set, call it profitability. They call it viability, I guess. Uh, that's not economically viable. Uh, but now take California. So we've had this cap and trade system in California. It was designed in 96 and went into effect in 2012. And California has had a little bit of a reduction in our admission since then, but it has nothing to do with cap and trade. It has to do with the years that we had a lot of rain and which haven't been many, many years. But in those years when uh, energy production switched to hydropower more than methane or so-called natural gas uh, for production of electricity, uh, emissions went down because of that, but not because of cap and trade. And one of the main reasons that cap and trade has been ineffective, although not the only one, uh, besides that the cap is much too generous, is that businesses are buying offsets. Yeah. In mm -hmm. fact, they bought so many offsets 
Now they can't, they're not allowed to buy international offsets, at least not yet. And we're going to prevent that from happening, but they can, um, like I was in the example I was using before, they can pay a farmer in Iowa to set up a biogas digester to capture methane from the pig farm, or they can pay a company or a municipality in Quebec because they have a deal with Quebec uh, to conserve their forests. And based on that, they can say, well, we have the credit. We have this carbon credit, this offset that we can use anytime. In fact, we can sell it to somebody else. It's a commodity, so it can be banked and traded. Mm -hmm. So there are secondary markets. There are speculators on the prices of offsets. Anyway, uh, it's not working in California. California has, uh, these companies have enough banked offsets that the policy could go on as it's scheduled year after year with these small reductions in the cap. And they wouldn't have to do a thing because they have all these offsets that allow them to keep doing what they were doing in the first place. So that, that's a big problem. Uh, now, I don't have personally, I mean, cap and trade, you know, within uh, a system. I mean, I, I, there's so many ways to game it that I don't think it's a very good approach, but I don't have so much of a problem with cap and trade as I do with the offsetting part of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's where that's where the real uh, damage comes in. Mm -hmm. But what else can we do? Um, I mean, the basic alternative is to, the world has to decarbonize. The only way to do it is to make pollution illegal, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. it, it's not going to happen through the private sector because right. the private sector needs its profit motivations. Right. That's how it's set up. Right. That's your duty as a corporate CEO is to see profit. So um, it has to involve government. And one of the things that's uh, going on right now around carbon offsetting is that these um, organizations that have been set up, these private self-regulating systems have been set up, are trying to reform themselves so that they can avoid real uh, government regulation. So uh, I don't think offsetting under any circumstances can be justified. Mm -hmm. But but the idea of putting all this technology and all these brains to work in calculating how much carbon is being emitted here and there and um, publicizing that and building it into uh, carbon uh, climate policy and economic policy at all levels municipal, state, national, and international uh, in the context of global climate agreements. So ways that you can have a transition, and by transition, um, that means uh, the transition to decarbonization requires two at least two kinds of things. One is really massive public investments in sustainable energy, sustainable transportation, uh, sustainable agriculture, Sure. I mean, then there's so much known about how to do this stuff better, just isn't profitable. There have to be major public investments, but they don't have to be unprecedented. If we had public investments anywhere near the scale that we had after World War II, these the, the funding for this would be available. Mm -hmm. So it's not in some, you know, other whole other world of uh, financial feasibility. Um, and the countries of the world, and here's where the big cost comes in, but still it's not uh, beyond the realm of possibility. 
the countries of the world need to be compensated for their environmental debt, for climate debt, because for centuries, um, companies in the global north have been benefiting from the cheap commodities they extract from the global south. And in effect, the global south has been exporting sustainability. <laughs> they are owed for that. Yes. And every place that you look in the world, um, there are organizations, there are indigenous organizations and their allies, peasant organizations, groups like La Via Campesina, the Peasant's Path. Everywhere you look, there are grassroots-based organizations and often internationally interconnected organizations that are fighting for control of the resources by the people who live in and depend upon uh, the natural environment. So we need to ally with them. We need to support their uh, exchanges and interactions and amplify their voices. Uh, it can it can be done, but it can't be done by saving the profitability of the industries that have shaped so much of our economies uh, all over the world, but especially in the global north. I really, really so much have appreciated this conversation, Kathy. Thank you so much for joining us today. I feel like the bottom line today is like, yeah, fossil fuel companies bear the blame, but also NGOs and scientists and reporters and anyone doing that intellectual labor that, you know, justifies extraction and destruction, uh, you know, the making of markets while burying the problem under more capitalism and even the subsidies that the governments are throwing into this are part of that. But the fact of the matter is that these are like these are harms that green capitalism can't actually contend with. And mm -hmm. all of these powerful actors, you know, they have blood on their hands and we have to end the fantasy of saving the climate with more capitalism. Because selling nature to save it. Selling nature it. to save it. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't work. You know, I really so appreciate you coming on today, Kathy. Um, I think that's the perfect place to leave it. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and for such a wonderful conversation and sharing, you know, your expertise with our listeners. Okay. Thank you. It was fun. Oh, it was so, so much, much fun. Really appreciate <laughs> it. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. To support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You'll get access to the second weekly bonus episode just for patrons and our entire back catalog of bonus episodes. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism or request it at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. <laughs> <laughs>